0: more than anything mark it was mindset simply belief i've consistently been maybe around 450 500 or so in billings my billings immediately went to like 650 and it just sort of stayed just just literally from belief
1: welcome to the resilient recruiter podcast this is your host mark whitby and my very special guest today is john schlegel John is the CEO and founder of Stonebridge Search in Austin, Texas, where he places professionals in the financial advisory services arena for global and boutique consulting firms, PE firms, investment banks, and accountancy firms. He also provides support for mergers and acquisitions on both the buy side and the sell side. Welcome, John. Thanks for doing this.
0: Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me.
1: I'm uh, really looking forward to this. You referred to me by Joe Rice. Joe Rice. Uh, who I believe you know because you're both members of the Pinnacle Society. Um, tell me about your h- how you got to know Joe, or uh, why do you think he recommended you specifically?
0: Yeah, so Joe and I, uh, Joe is a, one of my very best friends, and he and I came into the Pinnacle Society at the exact same time. So we were in the first in the same conference together, uh, where we were introduced to the Pinnacle Society. Um, so we were really, he didn't refer me into that group, but I guess he did, you know, obviously refer me to you, but Pinnacle, it's interesting in pinnacle. I was referred into that group because I had a friend here, um, locally that I was actually trying to rent a space from who knew the founder of pinnacle. Uh And she said, look, based on what you do, you should really meet this guy. He happened ironically to live in Austin. It's a guy named Mike Goldman. And so I went to have lunch with him and he said, look, I think you're perfect for our group. And so he introduced me and I went to a conference with Joe and we became members together It's in 2012, I think that was.
1: Awesome. All right. Well, that's so cool. So one thing I'd love to talk about you is about balancing business success and the other things which are most important to us in in, in life. Because I think that's something that, is important to you right um so i guess as an overall theme for today my uh question would be how can a solo practitioner bill 700,000 dollars plus and still have a life could you give a little intro to your thoughts on that uh that
0: question yeah that's been uh that's taken a while <laughs> to come up with the the right mix for that um you know i I used to work in a larger company. I mean, not it never worked in a really large company, but certainly a larger company where I had some leverage. And it's much easier to think about how to drive more revenue when you're in that structure. But since 2009, I've been completely on my own. And I wanted to, what kind of gave me the, the backdrop for how am I, how am I going to do this? It was mainly about how do I serve my clients better? You know, how am I able to tell them, I can still do everything you want me to do, but it's just me sitting here now, you know? So how do I do that? And I've just had to get creative over the years about how to create that leverage. And one of the ways that I've done that is I decided that, well, let me back up. One of the things I don't think I'm particularly great at, or maybe it's just, that's a cop-out, I just don't like it, is managing people from early stages in their career training them, building them up through the process, that is not my thing. And it's, that's a challenge, you know, when you're trying to grow your revenue and it's just you. So what I, try, what I decided to do was take on a couple of contract relationships with very, in one case, it's a late stage industry executive, uh, very good. He actually ran a recruiting firm at one point um, and was in, you know, industry executive positions prior to that. But he's, you know, got a few years left in his career, uh, really knows the business, very polished. And he was just looking for a way to keep his foot in the water in terms of being in our business, but really didn't want to be in charge of anything anymore. So that was perfect for me because some of the senior level searches that I get, if I don't have enough time for them, I'm able to leverage those to him. So that was one thing that gave me a way to do it. And then I've also picked up relationships with just sort of contract recruiters that are in my area that specialize in my kind of general scope of of what I recruit for. And that's been very helpful as well. But it all kind of started with this concept of, you know, how do I get broader with my client while being small? Because I Mm. think it's critical. I, I mean, just the most critical thing I would say about my business is you have to transition to a position of, trusted advisor and not just vendor. And that's, you know, I think it all starts from that position. And so, you know, one of the things I think hopefully separates me from competitors in my space is that they, you know, we tend to, in this business, I think the worst of us in this business, in my opinion, are the ones that come with just this approach of, you know, I've got this candidate. Are you interested? Oh, you're not? Do you know anyone who might be interested in this candidate? Or if you work it on the other side of the desk, it's, do you have any openings? Well, great. Let me know when you have any openings. And it comes off as sort of a very, very transactional uh, view of what we do. Mm -hmm. And so what I've tried to do is think more broadly about and exhaustively also about what my clients are trying to accomplish. You know, what step back from it and say, look, what are you, I understand you need this particular professional, But what is it that this year you're looking to do? Why do you want that professional? Mm -hmm. Um, How are you trying to grow? And then I've tried to position myself as, okay, look, even though I have a particular skill set personally, how can I connect with people that can help help me better serve my client more broadly? So as an example, one of the things that my clients are looking to do in many cases is make acquisitions. And so they're growing by acquiring other firms. Sometimes what I've noticed was, or what I was starting to notice was, some of the higher level placements that I was making with my clients were almost supplements to what their greater goals were. So I thought, you know what, I've got to find a way to be able to help them with acquisitions. I didn't set out to be an acquisitions guy, but I thought, this is what my client needs. And if I want to be more of an advisor, I have to be able to help them in this way. So for me, what that looked like was creating relationships with private equity firms and investment banks that serve my space. And like, for example, in one instance, I have a relationship with an investment bank that acquires firms like my clients. Mm -hmm. And so... I have worked out a structure with them where I refer deals to them that make sense. And that is a big benefit to my clients, particularly the boutique level clients that are looking to eventually be acquired. Um, Sometimes it's firms that my clients are looking to acquire. I will have access to those as well. And if it's something that's not something I actually do myself, I have that third party relationship to help me with that. So, it's done kind of two things in that particular example. One is it's created a new revenue stream for me that's a little bit passive, honestly. I mean, it's something that once I sort of light the fuse on it, I don't have to do a whole lot more. But it's that relationship building with my client that allows them to do what they're, you know, a little bit more than what their greater goals are. So, that's, I've tried to think about my practice in that way. And then, of course, I'm still going to get, the searches that I want to work on. And frankly, I get better searches as a result of this mentality of really thinking about how to serve my client. But I just feel like having a more broad, holistic view of the way that uh, I can help my clients has really served me.
1: It's so smart. Uh, John, I think your whole strategic approach to this makes total sense but how did you come to this like how did you cuz you didn't come from a pe or a, a investment banking background did you no so how did this evolve so to the point it is now where you've got these relationships and you can be that strategic advisor to your client firms and actually help them to achieve their bigger you know ambitions rather than just you're filling open slots?
0: Yeah, absolutely, great question. Um, You know, I think it started from a place of just being intellectually curious all the time Mm -hmm. and asking tons of questions of of the senior people at my clients. You know, what are you, again, it started with what are you trying to do? And then it was, okay, we're looking to make acquisitions. Great, well, who who are the target companies? who are the firms on the MA side that do support for M&A that are big in your space? You know, can I get an introduction to those people? Um, so just by asking a lot of questions about who those people are and then reaching out. And I found over the years that they're, they're often amazed. You know, I think sometimes as recruiters, especially if we're very niche like I am, we take for granted the volume of, of just information we have about right. our little world that we live in. And when you really step back and think about it, you may, in your niche, you may know more than literally anyone on the planet. And so when you call these people and you say, look, say it's a private equity firm, and you start getting very specific about this niche, and it's, they're like, well, that's crazy, that's my world. Like, but the problem is I don't know all, I don't have those institutional relationships that you do at our target companies. So they're thrilled that you give them a call because it's, it's something that they don't have, you know, it's, Hey, we know how to put deals together. We know what we want, but we don't know these people intimately. So we, a lot of times they're chasing leads that initially are very, um, they're very, they don't know a lot of people at those places. They just know they on paper make a lot of sense. So I'm able to help them, you know, get a warm introduction and things of that nature. So it, it, it's just making calls, you know, it's, it's asking people, you know, smart questions about who are the folks that really move the needle in that space and then making those calls. You know, it's, it's, it's an, it's actually an extension of what we already do as recruiters.
1: It's fascinating, John, because I think a lot of us, uh, and I'd probably include myself in this, just have blinkers on. So you just focus like, this is what I do. This is what I know about. And you're really taking those off and saying, well, actually, as a recruiter, I have so much information and knowledge about this world, this, this niche that I specialize in, how else could I apply that to the benefit of my clients, my candidates, and and obviously to my firm as well. And it's just a, it's, it's a fantastic way of thinking. Um, you mentioned intellectual curiosity, asking lots of questions and then building relationships with the right people. Um, do you financially, like do you set up deals that benefit you financially outside of the placement fees then? And so that you have multiple streams of, of
0: income? Yes. So for example, um, with an investment bank, I would, you know, it, it will be, it varies depending on how much involvement I'm going to have. But with an investment bank, I would have a deal where I would share, you know, a reasonable percentage of the fees that they would do on the back. Once, once a transaction actually happens, you know, mm-hmm. they, they collect the money. Um, sometimes with private equity firms, for example, I will have two types of relationships with them. One would be if they're actively looking for firms that are in my niche, um, where I will—it's—it's it's like a buy, that's more of a buy-side relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes I have that with, say, like accounting firms. They may say, "Hey, in general, we're this is a target area that we're looking to grow in. If you find a particular firm that fits this area, obviously, it's a much you know you're not going to get thirty percent of." That, but you're going to get, a, you know, a, still a pretty good piece of that when it comes down mm-hmm. to it. Certainly much bigger than a normal fee um, for a candidate. And then with the other thing I'll do with private equity firms is, again, thinking more broadly about what it is that I, my whole ecosystem that I work in is who are the firms that could serve, for example, their portfolio firms so, that are in my niche. Doesn't make mm-hmm. sense if they're not people I, I don't already know. So, but if they're like, you know what, it's funny, we have this client, we are, we have this portfolio firm that's really struggling in a certain area. You know, maybe it's their CFO is, uh, they're having trouble getting, you know, getting their systems up to speed or whatever. I may have a firm in my space, I happen to, that that's all they do is they come in and advise on, listen, we can fix that. So, in that instance, I might have a relationship with the, the firm that's actually providing that service. So for example, it might be say 10% of what it is that they're gonna get. So it's thinking about how can I make introductions to people that really need each other and create a percentage that I carve off of that for the introduction that is reasonable. I mean, they still have to make, you know, the majority of the money, obviously, in that. But I think the way I think about that is it's, it's somewhat passive. You know, it's not, I don't, with a, with a search, it is very hands-on. I mean, from start right. to finish, you are absolutely exhaustively. I mean, you could take 80, 90, a hundred hours on that search of my personal time. So yeah. therefore I deserve, you know, the full freight on that. But if it's, if it's one of these other things, I, you know, I just sort of light the fuse and walk away and, and you get enough of them that happen that actually happen. I was actually shocked the, it, when I first did this, I had a friend of mine who, who recommended I try this. And I was like, you know, I just don't, this just seems so out there. Like, that's not what I do. How, how's that going to work? And it did. And it worked. And it was like, it's worked five or six times now. And it's, you know, you start to pick up more confidence that, you know what, this, they actually really like this. They're starting to see me differently now because I think about these sorts of things for them. And then you start thinking the next layer, like, wait a minute, who are the other firms that I know that might, might appreciate these relationships that I have? And, you know, I think then it puts a lot of responsibility on you though, Mark, because you have to be, you have to be careful not to, to abuse that, that relationship, you know, and start Mm -hmm. to turn on, turn them on to things that don't make sense. It has to really be something that's coming from a place of helping them. But I think, as, I think as long as you keep that mindset, you, there, it, there are so many things we can do that we just don't think we can do or we don't realize we can do, you know?
1: Amazing, John. What I love about this is that it also, you use the word trusted advisor, which I like. And I, the term I use is respected leader in your field. Mm-hmm. I don't, I think too many recruiters, especially like if you're running a solo practice, we don't necessarily think of ourselves as leaders, right? You don't, you're not managing a team necessarily, but at the same time, I believe that you can occupy that, that status within your ecosystem. If you can um, provide significant value and um, really just step into that leadership role, no one's going to confer that, you know, that leadership upon you, right? You just have to um, confer it on yourself and decide. I, I'm going to try and help people in a bigger way, um, and and maybe it doesn't necessarily directly benefit me even. But I want to be a more central, occupy a more central role in my, in the world that I serve, and um, I really think that elevates you above the sort of more transactional recruiters who are out there hustling and grinding and just chasing the, the, you know, the placement fees. Of course we, you know, we need, we need to make placements, but um, does that make sense? It's more of a mindset shift.
0: Yeah, it is. It's um, it's just thinking more broadly about how you can help. And if you, you're, you're just going to find that if you can take the blinders off just a little bit every day and, and realize you know what? And the question I always ask myself is, what what is the what is the bigger goal of what we're trying to accomplish with this particular mm. client or this search? Yeah. Um, and taking the time to ask them those que- the, your clients those questions, right? It opens up all sorts of doors that you don't. And, and at the absolute minimum, you're you're building more of your brand to those people. You're 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 elevating yourself above your even if you never did any of these ancillary things I'm talking yeah. about. It, it creates a different relationship with your client in the way yeah. that it is. It's right. It's a different conversation
1: even. Uh, I can imagine that gives you a stronger entry point into the relationship as well. If they perceive you as being not just another recruiter, there's nothing wrong with being a recruiter. I, I love recruiters and, and I think it's a noble profession, um, but there's a lot of recruiters, right? And so if you have a different, Take on this, and you can provide additional value that others can't. I think it's a huge, huge advantage. But actually, something you said about thinking more broadly and asking more questions about the bigger objective is important for every recruiter to do so that you understand why your client is making this higher, right? Because even if it's just something as like a developer or a team of developers and you you're saying well why why are you hiring these developers well we need we've got a new update we want to release a, you know a new product into the marketplace okay awesome and why do you want to do that and well because you know we want to increase our market share we want to you know overtake the competitors we want to generate um upgrades to our existing, you know, base of users. Okay, interesting. And then where does that, what does that do for you? Oh, well, that means that we can become, instead of right now, we're the number six company in our field, we want to move up and become in the top three. And okay, well, why do you want to do that? Well, because, you know, in five years time, we're going to float on the stock market and we need to be, you know, one of the, you know, one of the leading firms in the top 10% of our industry, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And so if you're the recruiter, making the, placing a developer in that context, you've got a lot more to work with, both in terms of presenting the opportunity to the candidate, but also leverage with the client. So then if they say, um, if they start dragging their heels or taking too long over decisions, you could say, look, if we delay on this, how's it going to affect your release of this new product update? And they're like, oh, well, we're, I guess we're going to miss. Okay, and what impact does that have on you increasing your market share, right? So I think recruiters some, just need to really understand what the client is trying to achieve in order to be able to serve them at the highest level and also make sure the client doesn't mess this up, right? Because clients sometimes mess things up because they're they're not appreciating how what we're trying to do affects the the bigger picture as well. Sorry, I went off on a tangent there. No, this that's is, great. That's great. Um, yeah, absolutely.
0: Uh,
1: a topic I, I feel passionate about. So let's rewind uh, for a few minutes, John. And you said you started your firm in 2009. Mm-hmm. And um, why did you decide to set up on your own?
0: Yeah, uh, it you know, it I didn't I didn't initially have that goal. Um my I had kind of a wild curveball <laughs> in the 2007 to 2009 area. I had a, a lot okay. happening and I was working for a little boutique firm in Nashville, which is where I lived at the time. This was 01 to Oh seven. I lived in Nashville. And uh My wife at the time got breast cancer and actually died at a very young age, 33, very early 2007. And um, so I didn't really have any family there. I liked the the firm that I was working with, but I just outside of, I mean, obviously I had my wife's family, um, but I didn't have a lot of ties to that area. So I kind of, I knew I maybe needed a change in my life. I didn't know at the time that it was going to involve starting my own firm. Um, but I ended up, I ended up meeting, um, another, just a fantastic lady who I'm now married to, uh, at a conference that I was at in Texas. Um, well, she wasn't at the conference, but I met her actually at the airport of all places. Wow. And we, yeah, so, um, so we ended up hitting it off and, you know, dating long distance for, for a little over a year. And uh, eventually it led to me moving here to Austin. And when I did, it, was, um, it, was, uh, it became pretty apparent early on that my company that I was working with, which I did continue to work with for a while uh, here in Austin, but it, they just weren't really doing what I do. And it and it was uh, you know great departure, great guys, but I just felt like it, it was time to make a leap and start my own firm. Now, what mm-hmm. I didn't realize that was that that year was actually going to be the most, at least here in the United States, the most challenging year, like that I, in my career and just in general with the markets. Two thousand. What year was that, John? 2009. Oh, two thousand nine.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Believe me, so I, great, I understand.
0: Great timing to start a firm, right? But um, yeah. so that that was a a a wild stretch from 2007 to 2009, but that's kind of how I got started with my
1: Oh my gosh. That's wow. So I don't, I don't even know where to start with that. It sounds like that whole period was just so much change in such a short period of time. Uh, And now did you have children as well? Or you from your, your previous- wife yeah
0: yes i had two um two children they're now at the okay. time they were 4 and 2 and oh, now they're 18 and 16
1: wow so, okay
0: gosh and i have two i have two additional kids as well now so i have 18 16 11 and 6 so we're pretty busy
1: wow that's amazing so you ended up meeting somebody moving to Texas, starting a firm, expanding your family. So she had, did she have kids already or you have had more kids together? Yeah. She had no kids. We've just had. Okay. More together. Got yeah. it. Okay. So you brought your two, then you expanded your family. You started your firm. Like how did you stay sane during that crazy, you know, roller coaster of personal and business events? Um, I mean, that sounds brutal.
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, I was I was kind of blessed that I. It's it's funny how in my life everything's kind of happened for a particular reason. But in uh, Nashville is a, a very healthcare focused city, and so uh, the pieces of my service areas that I recruited in that were related to healthcare, I started to focus on a lot more in when I was in Nashville. And that paid huge dividends in 2009 because it was one of the few industries, at least in my area of focus, that didn't really have a tremendous downturn. So I was able to kind of just survive really on healthcare that year. Um, but it was, uh, yeah, it was crazy. I mean, it was, there was a lot of just kind of think about the next thing that's in front of you and, and just do whatever you can to close this deal. And it, it really was the only year in my entire recruiting career that it felt like a job. It felt mm. like, wow, this is about just getting to the next day. You know. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I. I. I mean, two thousand eight, two thousand nine. I. My business fell off a cliff. I made the classic mistake of. Um, I had too many eggs and too few baskets. I got like eighty percent of revenue was from f- five companies, and um, and four out of the five stopped doing all. And I, I, at the time my business model was doing training for larger recruiting and staffing firms. And they, they were growing and hiring like crazy, right. In the run up to sort of 2008. And they had all these people and they're like, Mark, can you come back? We we've got another batch for you to train and so on. And then they all not only stopped hiring, but started like contracting and of course training is one of the first things that gets axed right is um from from the budget when companies are trying to survive. So uh like my income dropped in half almost overnight. I remember it was July 2008. Um and that was uh that was pretty scary and had to totally reinvent what I was doing and how I was how I was doing it. So you were parallel in in Austin trying to um, build your, your search firm. So then once things started recovering, what happened next? How did you evolve the business in the direction that it's, you know, it's taking today?
0: Yeah, I think the, the freedom that I had that came from starting my own firm gave me a lot. That was kind of the launch point for my mindset of how can I get broader and deeper as we discussed earlier with my clients. Yes. And, um, You know, I started taking on more things that were acquisition related, things of that nature. Um, But it was it it was also Pinnacle. I mean, Pinnacle, I have to say, at the end of the day, was by far the most meaningful in terms of just production in my business. Um, Before Pinnacle, I had never really been around any sort of formal training or a group of people that were really um, I mean, I had a few individual friendships of people that were pretty productive in the industry. Um, But they were just local level folks that happened to be in the firms that I was in. And Mm -hmm. I didn't know what I didn't know. You know, I mean, I I had no concept of what was good or what was not great in our industry in terms of production. Mm -hmm. So when I went to my first Pinnacle meeting, it was, gosh, every, I mean, I was the absolute low man on the totem pole. (laughs) I mean, I had always been at firms that I'd been at before. The, either the top guy or at least the number two guy in yeah. production. But we go, one of the things we do at Pinnacle is the first day we, we sort of go around the table and everybody gives the status of where they're at for the year and what they're projecting at. And I was like halfway around the table. It's a, like 80 people, you know, so I'm about halfway around the table and I don't, I'm like, Oh my God. I mean, there's been 40 people go, I'm the lowest numbers. Like This is, this is insane, you know? And so it was, But what I found was that it wasn't so much. Once I started talking with those people about how do you do this? I don't understand how there's enough time in the day. I realized it was more than anything, Mark. It was mindset. It was just Mm. simply belief that it was, it's I believe that I deserve to be having these types of conversations. And there were some structural things that I learned too from it. Some little tweaks that really helped. But um, it was mainly just a belief thing, man. I mean, the next year, um, my best year ever at that point. I think. It, well, I had one year where I did like in the sixes somewhere, but I I consistently been maybe around four fifty, five hundred or so uh, in billings. My billings immediately went to like six fifty, and it just sort of stayed. Just just literally from belief in being. Wow. With
1: Before I go to my next question, I'd like to share one of the keys to my success in recruitment and in business. You may have noticed that a lot of the people I interview on this show have a coach. That's not a coincidence. Most high achievers have a coach, including me. I've worked with various coaches over the last 20 years, and it's been a huge factor in my own personal and business growth. Here's why. Sometimes it's hard to see the forest for the trees, and it really helps to take a step back and look at how you can improve the business and get a fresh outside perspective from someone who's bringing new ideas and insights to the table. Plus, as a business owner, who is holding you accountable and helping you stay on track? So I wanna encourage you, if you're not already working with a coach, get one. It doesn't have to be me. There are plenty of amazing coaches out there. Just find someone who you believe will add measurable value to your business and can help you get to the next level. If you do wanna explore a coaching relationship with me, then you're welcome to apply for a free 30-minute strategy session at recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. This is not a sales call. My number one objective is to help you to get clear on your goals Identify the roadblocks that are holding you back and create a strategic plan to increase your billings and grow your business. I promise you'll leave our session feeling focused, re energized, and excited to take your business to the next level. You can apply at www.recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. John, can you elaborate on what that mindset shift was specifically? Like, what can you give an example of the sorts of like what you used to believe and now what you now believe that has allowed you to tap into more of your potential. Because you were, you like, this is the thing, you didn't get smarter all of a sudden. I don't, it sounds like you weren't necessarily working any harder and yet you were able to unlock a whole nother level. So what, could could you elaborate on that mindset shift?
0: Sure. Yeah, It it was... I, a part of it was that I think I was suffering a little bit from that. I'm a vendor. You know, I just I don't even know that I consciously was aware of it. I was just sort of doing the job like it, there's look, I got to get X amount of placements. And, and I, I, it, I was very kind of methodical and I'm probably typical of most recruiters that are in our business. You know, you just go in, you have X amount of dials you're going to make per day. And I thought of the business in that way what I didn't realize that that mindset, at least for me can do is it, it can make you believe that you don't deserve a certain level of seat at the table with your clients Mm -hmm. in terms of the, the mindshare of what, you know, what is those conversations of what are the greater issues in your space? Mm -hmm. I I think subconsciously I sort of felt like before pinnacle, that was all I, I didn't sort of deserve to be in those conversations. If that makes sense. Um, one of the things that I learned that's more of a practical answer is what Jordan gray boy, who's also been on your, your podcast, great friend of mine. He was actually just here uh, a couple weeks ago. Oh, cool. He, um, he's, he, I think he shared this on the, the episode he was on with you where he talked about the, Hey, if, if you need to make X amount per year and you extrapolate those hours out that you're going to work, that's say $300 an hour, what, what, are you, what are the activities that are $300 an hour or less that you are spending your time on every day? And that's something I immediately learned from Pinnacle. That was one of the very first conversations I had at my very first Pinnacle meeting. And I thought, you know what? He's right. I'm spending probably 60% of my time on things that are less meaningful than I should be. And so that's when I started thinking about, wait a minute, I've got to, I've got to, even if I don't want to have a big company, I've got to create relationships with people who that, those things are their lane. You know, that's what they want to do. So I hired a full-time assistant. I had not had one up to that point. And then I uh, started creating these, these contract relationships with other people, you know, being willing to hire uh, companies that do certain things that I was spending tons of time on that were just not productive so that's that's an example of what i you know how kind of how it made some changes
1: yeah, so I guess part of it was feeling worthy of a seat at the you know at the table with the top decision makers in your client companies and and feeling that I deserve to be here i'm bringing value, and ultimately i can I can benefit these companies and help them achieve their goals. The other was understanding the value of your time and 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 identifying opportunities that you could delegate or outsource tasks that didn't require your personal you know uh, time in order to 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 get them accomplished. Um, so that's that's huge. What was the um, so you mentioned these contract recruiters? Are these freelancers, essentially, or are they research firms? Like, what's the dynamic there?
0: Sure. Um, I've tried a little bit of everything. I've tried outsourced kind of, you know, I've tried India, you know, mm-hmm. things that where, where you're looking, especially at lower levels. I've tried that, uh, lower levels of searches. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had kind of mixed success with that. I think there are certain, certain types of searches that they're particularly good at, um, mm-hmm. at least the ones that I've, I've used. Um I think where I've had the most I know where I've had the most success is with local experienced contract recruiters. So mm-hmm. I'm working with them on a uh what we here in the states call 1099 basis. Yeah. And so um they are their own boss, but they I give them searches um that that I have and then sometimes they'll will share searches if it's something that uh, for example the most senior individual I work with has a space here in my building. And um, he, some he has his own firm and he does his own searches. But he and I will share searches. Sometimes searches that he found, and sometimes searches that I found. Um, but I love working with the the common thread with everyone I work with is they're they're very seasoned. Because I need to not have downtime. I need to know. Hey, I can spend an hour with this person explaining to them exactly what the little nuances and buzzwords are. And then they get the recruiting piece of it. I don't All have right. to teach them that, so yeah. that's been my focus. So, so to answer your question, they are sort of contract independent people.
1: Got it. So ten ninety nine means they're they're self employed. The, um, do you pay by the hour, by the project, or uh, like a success fee? Like how does that how does that work?
0: It you know if it's a search that I give to someone. For me personally, what i found most successful is I just split it. I mean, if I'm going to give them the search, Mm -hmm. in order to attract this level of person on a 1099 basis, I think you have to give them 50% of the fee in my space. Now that might not be true everywhere, but in my space, that's what I do.
1: Got it. Got it. So typically, I know there's been instances where you share searches someone else might've brought to the table, but you're the kind of um, face of the business, and you are the lead, you know, client relationship manager, business developer. You bring a search on, and then do you ever do the delivery part yourself, or do you always like choose one of your uh, contract recruiters, who's you think is going to be the most appropriate person for that?
0: Well, I mean, on most of my searches, I'm I'm doing all of it. Uh, oh, I see. Is that, is that what you meant? Like, do I? Yeah, do I-, I thought
1: maybe you had like a system where you would, you would win the search and then you would hand off to your delivery team, whoever you know, was going to be involved in that project. And then you would oversee the process, but then you're on to winning the, the next one.
0: Yeah, no. So in my space, I have what, what I typically do is I will have a, maybe four to five searches that I'm working at any, any given time. Yeah, that are the the ones that I I believe are the best use of my personal time. On those searches, I'll be running those things from start to finish personally. Got it. I do though get all these other searches that come in that are I, I really need to be able to serve my client on those. Mm-hmm. Um, so I those are the ones that I'll I'll pull in some help for. Because I see. Yeah. So how I do you
1: decide what you're personally going to work on and what you're going to uh, hand, hand off
0: sometimes a decent amount of the time. It's about the level of the search, the complexity of the search. If it's a, a higher level search, I will generally handle those. Most of the time, if it's a mid kind of mid level search, unless it's very specific. And I know I'm the only person that's got that institutional knowledge to know how to find it. If it's something that's relatively easy to find, I will then use one of these individuals for that. Um, and that, I have to tell you, Mark, that was initially very challenging for me. I get the sense that that's probably for, challenging for a lot of recruiters is that we, we can get this mindset of nobody can do this like I can do it.
1: Right. Exactly. Exactly.
0: And, and the reality is if they can do it 80% as well as you do and you give them a couple of chances to do it. Now, maybe they're 90% as good as you. And if it's a search that to begin with is kind of moderately difficult, you need to give somebody else that search. I mean, that's Mm. been my experience. And this is only if you're going to stay small like me. Now, Mm -hmm. of course, if you're going to build a 25-person firm, the the equation changes completely. But if you want to be a solo person and be able to, to... serve your clients as though you're not, Mm -hmm. you have to get creative like this and Mm. be willing to let go of some things. I mean, that has been a really, it still to this day is hard for me that I have to look at certain searches and go, you know what? It's in my client's best interest that I, I get some help with this. Because if I don't, I'm not going to be able to put as much of myself into the searches that they need more of my personal attention on. Right. And it just so happens that I, that I end up making more money as a result of that. I think if I was, if I started from a notion of how can I make the most money, it, yes. I don't think it would work as well. I have to think yeah. about what's going to serve the client the best. And then back. Into it. It.
1: All right. Got it. So the first question is what, what is going to serve the client? Is it going to be me working the search or is it going to be involving someone else? Um, now, that, along with this concern of giving up control or giving it to someone who might not be as good or, or what have you, um, surely there is a danger of picking the wrong person. Like, How do you, how do you test people or, or find new people who maybe you haven't worked with before? I'm sure now you've got your trusted folks, but in the beginning when you were uh, creating this model... Cause there's a risk that they, they, they don't deliver. Right. And then you're, uh, and you've made a promise to the client and then you're not delivering on that promise. So how, how did you overcome that issue?
0: It, it was, I think, well, big picture, what I had to, I think you have to do. And what I certainly did was you have to be willing to take the search back. If, if it's starting okay. to fail, I still mm-hmm. have oversight of the search. Yeah. So I'm seeing the, the candidates come in. I'm, I know if they're good or not. And if I'm consistently sensing that my contract recruiter is just not getting it in this particular subject matter area, I will either call the client and say, listen, I am i don't think we can fill this, or I will take over on the search. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had to do both. You know, Sometimes yeah. I've realized along the way that, you know what? It's not the contract recruiter that's the issue. This is a rough search. I'm not sure we can fill this. So I think I just, you have to be willing to do a little trial and error with these people that you're using and understand that you may have to take these searches back. And I'm very transparent with the, the recruiters I work with too that, listen, I have to serve the client first. And so if this is not working, I may in fact take this thing back. And, you know, I think as long as you're transparent with them, they're okay with that.
1: Makes total sense. And are are they working with you more or less full time or do they have other clients that they're also working with? How do you negotiate that?
0: You know, so far it's worked out where they, they're working with other, uh, other stuff, their own things, um, as well. They may be working even with other recruiters like me, um, mm-hmm one thing I do think you have to be very, very careful with when you're doing this is making sure that they're not potentially serving three or four people that do the same thing. Mm. So I wouldn't want, I would be, what I do is so specific that it's Mm -hmm. highly, highly unlikely that they would be also supporting someone that has the same types of searches. Yeah. But I think some people in the industry, if you're, let's say you're generally recruiting accounting and finance Mm -hmm. that if you're in a say middle market city, like I am, that can, you can have situations that are difficult there where you're actually directly competing, you know, creating a problem. Um, so that I, I'm very careful about that to make sure that they know enough about my space that they, they can probably do it, but they're not in my space, if that makes sense. I understand mm. going in, I'm gonna have to train a little bit of my space to them.
1: Yeah, no, that makes sense. Interesting. So it's, it's and so how many contract recruiters do you have that you can um, delegate searches to?
0: I have one that works with me a lot. I mean, he's, okay. he's probably 50% of his time or more is spent doing stuff that we do together. Great. Um, And then I have two others that I work with that are kind of periodic. Um, I might work with both of them, say, two to three times a year.
1: Got it. Okay, fantastic. So coming back to our original premise, then, in terms of um, this issue of being highly productive, but balancing your time. I'm starting to see how you're achieving this in one way. It's, you're not trying to do everything yourself. You're recognizing, okay, if it's, you know, tasks that are below X, you know, dollar value, then I'm gonna delegate, I'm gonna outsource, I'm going to partner with other recruiters and so on. What else are you doing to make sure that you still have a life and you able to spend time with your kids and your family and everything else?
0: Yeah. You know, I think, I think you just have, this business can be all consuming. It it, it never ends and it it really Mm -hmm. doesn't. And I do think you have to kind of accept and you have to speak with your significant other about it too, that this, there is an element of this business that doesn't stop even if we're on the beach. So (laughs) I think in my case, I'm very fortunate that my, my wife gets that and so if we're even on vacation, for example, I'm like, look, from I'm going to go down early uh, at the hotel and like from 8 to 10 a.m. I'm going to be doing this stuff and then I'll hang out with you guys the rest of the day. But hey, there mm-hmm. may be something that comes in at 3 p.m. that I have to step away and take for 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a there's a piece of embracing what our life is and saying, look, I've, I've chosen to sign up for something that gives me Incredible freedom to be able to say, you know, what if we want to spend twenty-five weeks a year somewhere, theoretically, at a VRBO somewhere, we can do that. There's no reason why we can't do that. Yeah. But you just have to understand that there's there there's a there's a mindset around how do I continue not how do I not drop the ball while that's happening.
1: Right, so right. I hear it, you. It's
0: and- a very delicate balance that we have in this business.
1: Yes, it is. It's uh it can be hard to switch off because you don't you don't get to the end of the day and go, "Okay, I I'm finished for the day," right? There's always more you could do. And so, being able to you know, just switch that off to then be present for your family and then, you know, when you're you might sort of be on call as you say, that's uh it's that's tricky for sure. Um, I was hoping you had some awesome solution to this, John. But uh, sounds like you're in the same boat as me. Um, so, but maybe we just maybe that just is uh, is part for the course. Tell me, when you were getting established in Austin in this field, what do you think were the things you did that gave you the most traction? <laughs>
0: Yeah, I think, I think the first thing was, uh, you know, ca- calling all of my existing clients. I was fortunate enough to be able to work out a nice, easy transition with my, my old company. And I do think if you're leaving to start your own firm, that's critical. I mean, you really have to, to make sure you protect your kind of in industry uh, connections as well. So that, we, that was good. We were able to call most of our clients right away. And so I think it was letting them know that, Hey, I'm going through a little bit of a transition. It's, you know, it's just me now, but, uh, I was able to just, just keep the ball rolling pretty close to the same way that I was, um, by just, just getting proactive right away with, you know, Hey, I'm going to have to add some new clients. I'm going to have to get a little more broad in what I do. And, um, Just putting my head, I mean, I think the thing, if I did one thing correctly when I started my own firm, it was I had a mindset of, and it turned out not to be this way, but I had a mindset that in this first year, I'm going to have to assume I have to work 80 to 90 hours a week, if necessary, to just make absolutely certain that I've got cash flow. And I could, because I was super concerned that they, you know, hey, maybe it's not me that they're following. You know, there was that little voice in my head like, you know, was it maybe the firm I was working with that they were into and it wasn't me? But I was so pleased to see that it actually was me. And so I was fortunate in that most of that stuff started to come over pretty quickly. Um, So, you know, I don't have, there wasn't like a crazy, wow, there was a huge, other than 2009, you know, doing what it did to us. But it was, it came over actually pretty well. Together, but I do think if there was one thing, it was I did work a lot harder the first six months to ensure that 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 pipeline was really built.
1: Makes sense. Makes sense. So, looking back at uh, your career to date, what what advice would you have for um, others who are maybe you know they're they're good at what they do but they're working too hard for the return that they're getting. Cause I talk to a lot of recruiters who are in that position. They're, they're good. They do, they really care about their clients and they want to um, you know, they want to serve their clients and they're, they're just really in that hustle and grind mode, which can be the the path to burnout. And they're not, they're doing okay, but they're not hitting their, full potential, what would you say would be your top two or three suggestions to someone in that position?
0: The, the first thing for sure is taking inventory of how you're spending your time, really spending mm-hmm. some time thinking about from, from the time you wake up, I mean, literally from the time you wake up until you go to bed, what, what, how are you li- breaking it down in a very mm-hmm. minute way? How are you spending your time once you get to the office? What are the tasks you're working on? What are the searches you're taking that you're personally working on? Um, why are you doing that? Why? So mm-hmm. for example, in my case, my average fee size is about 42,000 roughly. Okay. So it, that has not always been the case. There was a point where it was 20,000 and there was no reason looking back on it. Why it, it had to be, it was, I chose for it to be, mm-hmm. I just said, I'll, I'll take those searches. And so I think there's some conscious decisions that you have to make about, I'm just not going to take those searches. Or if I am going to take those searches, I'm going to get help in doing those. Right. So I think that's the, that's the first thing is because what that does, is it starts to buy you some margin. You know, yes. you now don't, you can literally make half the placements and make right. the same salary. Exactly.
1: So, but yep.
0: I, I, I don't know. Of course, at the time I was one of those people that was caught yeah. in that race, yeah. and I think sometimes we we get so busy doing that we don't stop to be smart about our business and go, you know what, what, why am I why am I doing that? What is stopping me from doing these things? And so that for me personally, that was a big one was deciding that I needed to move upstream in the types of things that I was working on. Yeah. Um, the other thing I think is really take inventory of especially if you're solo. What I found with me and my all my friends who are going to listen to this will be laughing as I say this because they know I still struggle with this. You can drift a lot. I mean, I you know, you can find yourself making these calls at times is extremely hard as it is. But if you're having a rough run and you just got off a really rough call, the idea of watching a documentary on YouTube that's two and a half hours long seems pretty appealing. And I think you need to take an honest look and there's some, there's some programs out there that'll actually give you inventory of what your, your digital time was of what, you know, what you were doing at various times. And I think you'd be shocked sometimes when you look at that of, wow, what was I, what was I, what video was I watching? What was I, that was three and a half hours that I spent on that. And I'm just being very raw and honest here that there are times that that is something that people struggle with and you need to tighten up your time and look at it. Like I worked with a coach one time who said, John, your personality type is such that you're better off having blasts of energy throughout the day because you get, I get very, um, I I get uh, distracted easily and so it's i can put a i'm glad to hear you over. say that
1: by the way because it, it, that gives hope to those of us who are also get distracted easily that we can st- still um manage uh, you know in spite of those drawbacks or, or 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 um limitations we can still get quite a lot of horsepower out of ourselves right. so how do you manage those distractions
0: if, if I, if I have a window and it, it, I have a lot of them throughout the year, believe me, where I have a, a window of time where I just feel that I'm starting to get distracted. Um, it could be a week. It could be a month. It could be a quarter, you know, that just for whatever reason, I have life circumstances that are going on that just have me distracted. Mm-hmm. So what I'll try to do is think about my days in, in terms of blasts of time. So I'll, let's say I'm going to get into the office at nine o'clock. I'll block out in my calendar. Okay. We're not asking for a miracle here, nine to 1030. There's this task and you're just going to go full bore on that task for 90 minutes. And then you build in a 30 minute break. You know, you build in, Hey, go down. Yeah, this is, it's cool to go down to, you know, grab, grab a soft drink or whatever, and walk around the building if you have whatever you have to do to sort of get that nervous energy out of your system. And then we're going to have another 90-minute blast. I found that you're better off having three 90-minute blasts throughout the day than you are going in at 8 a.m. and just sort of wandering around in your brain all day. And you'll find, at least I have, when you look back on the day, you worked like 90 minutes total for the whole day right. of focused right. work. And you, But yet, in your mind, you're going, you know, I'm I don't know how I could work any harder. Well, you may not be, <laughs> you may, you may not actually be working as much as you think you are on things that are productive. At least that's been my experience.
1: Yeah, no, Well said for sure. I think, um, I mean, you've highlighted some of the fundamentals. Do you, so one is keeping a time log of what am I actually spending my time on, whether that's just a, with a pen and paper, or whether it's a, a tool that tracks like what you're actually doing. Um, and then number two is structuring your time so that you have those blocks of focused focused time for sure because I do think it's better to work with intensity for shorter periods of time than to say, oh, I'm going to do whatever for all morning or all day because realistically, you're not going to be able to stay to concentrate for that length of time and be on it. You're going to drift and you're going to pace yourself subconsciously, right? So... That's a really good suggestion. And number three is taking a step back and looking at your business and thinking, well, why am I working on these types of searches? Why don't I move up the value chain and get paid more for the same effort? Right. And that could be a, a, a big shift as, as well.
0: Yeah. And Mark, also, you've, mm. I found as I moved up that value chain, as you said, it started to, there's less competition at the higher mm. levels. And, you know, so I, that's another reason why, for example, I do a lot more what commonly here are called NPCs or most yep. placeable candidates. I will, if the more niche you are, the more this works, yes. if, you take, if you take people that you know make sense for your clients mm-hmm. or groups of people that you know make sense for your clients and present those people, of course, with their permission, and you've, you've set this all up, it, there's no competition for that. And it's and if you do if you do land those things it's obviously much larger fees and again it's this circle of also I'm building a different brand you know now my client sees me even if they don't make the hires yes you know, they see you as different now you
1: know right exactly that's interesting now you said something which. Which is marketing a group of people. Can you speak on that? Because I'm I'm familiar with NPC marketing. For those who don't know the acronym, it stands for most placeable candidate, which simply means you've got an A player, a really superstar individual. They're gonna land somewhere because they're so good companies are gonna you know, are, are going to want to hire them, you may as well be the one who introduces them to their next employer and, and, uh, and gets the fee because someone's going to get a fee out of it or, or, or what have you, but you're talking about a a group. Are you talking about moving, like lifting out a whole team or what, is, what are you talking about? Yes. There?
0: So it, it it could either be a team within a company that is, uh, for example, one time I had a client that said, we really want to open an Atlanta office for valuation services, which is something I recruit for. So I knew of a group that was within another company in my space that was active. They were they were starting to think about moving, but they really enjoyed working together. So it was two people initially, and they had a couple of other people that I think eventually followed them. But those two people, I thought, you know what? There, it's it's better again. It's better for the client if they get them both because they're used to working well together. Um, that's another aha thing to me was, wait a minute, the client they they want to hire multiple people. <laughs> you know, it was that kind of is it okay for me to do that? Yes, right I want you to right. do that. You know, so that was an example of a, a little small kind of what I call lift out where you took a, yeah. a smaller group. But also you can do that with boutique companies where if you have a company that's got a a little niche, maybe they have seven to 10 people, maybe 20 people, and you have a client that has $600 million in revenue and they're looking to grow in that area but they don't have. They're more than willing to to take a look at that thing as a company. Now, if you get into some nuances where you have to be careful with this, that if there's nuances where there's going to be capital raised or something like that you then need to partner with somebody who has those qualifications and those designations or you could get into some trouble for that but um but but it's but it's easy to do that you know it's not hard to do that at all
1: Hmm. interesting i uh knew a lady who once did move a whole team and now she was complaining about it. She got a $1 million fee for that. But she was saying that was way less... Like, if she had t- had the placement fee multiplied by however many, I think it was 20 people or whatever, it would have been a lot more than that. But the client sort of wanted to cap it at a million dollars, which... Um, I mean, for most people, that would be a good, a good payday, right? Um, but do you find that clients are willing to pay you multiple fees for like multiple team members or are they always going to want some kind of concession
0: yeah it's you have to, th- that's a great point because there is a point where you what i call um you you're sort of choking the deal you know you're you're making it not feasible for them to do it if you have a group say for example that does 10 million dollars in revenue and there are five partners that are making $300,000 each, mm-hmm. and you ask for 30% of five partners at $300,000 base salaries, Right. the deal starts to at some point not make sense for them. As, as a collective whole, it starts mm-hmm. to not make sense. So if you are going to do some of this work, you do need to get kind of educated on what does buy side and sell side, um, wh- what are those fees tend to look like So even though you're not really that, like that's not your full-time kind of day job, you do need to be familiar with the the terminology of how those people get paid. Because that's what, when you bring these kinds of ideas to your clients, especially if they're larger, they want to look at them in terms of how they would typically do it with an investment bank. And it's still a a very large, I mean, it's fantastic fees. But it is, um, yeah, I do remember, it's funny you bring that example up, because I remember the first one I did that was of any real substance was, you know, 20 plus people. And I, in my mind, I'm going, wow, this is, there's, you know, I'm just adding the fees. And I'm going, this is going to be, like, I can retire, you know, at some point, right. if i doing five or six of these a year. Um, but you do have to realize that it's a different, it's a different game when you do it that way. But again, if you, if you remove yourself from, I I know I sound like a broken record, but if you remove yourself from what is my fee and start thinking about how does this help the client and just sort of embrace that, look, it's going to be a big fee. I mean, you're going to get a lot of money if you do this, just do what's right by the client. And then you're going to get an opportunity to do more of these in the future.
1: Absolutely. That's a great Philosophy for sure, uh, especially for a sustainable career over the long term that generates not only pl- placement fees but referrals and and um, you know reputation. So, John, listen, we're out of time for today. I've really enjoyed uh, meeting you. So, thank you so much for uh, getting up super early to record this with me in spite of the time difference. I really appreciate you and and um, your willingness to to share and help other recruiters.
0: Absolutely, Mark. Thanks for having me and thanks for what you do for our industry.
1: Oh, well, thank you. Have an awesome day. Talk to you again. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to The Resilient Recruiter. If you've enjoyed the show, the best way you can show your support is to click that subscribe button. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.